I think, at least, that it's crucial, it's very simple what I will say, to locate Putin into that, uh, how should I call it, Russian nationalist line, which was active all the time, which played Stalin against Lenin. The idea was this one, Lenin and Trotsky bad guys. They didn't care about Russia, they gave too many rights to other nationality, and all this liked what Stalin did in the early 30s, rewriting the entire history. For example, you know that in the 20s, the official Soviet history of Russia was, con as every Marxist should do, condemning the expansion on Russia to the South, Gruzia, whatever, the uh, Tsarist Russia, or to Siberia, as clear great power colonialism. No. From early 30s onwards, Stalin's historiography totally changed the line and it became progressive bourgeois development, like bringing civilization to primitive countries. And also all the great Tsars, Peter the Great, Ivan the Terrible, Catherine and so on, were no longer just feudal despots, but progressive enlightenment figures and so on and so on. It was a total nationalist rewriting. This is why, even if he shows a little bit understanding for these humanitarian problems of Stalinism. He, nonetheless, Putin, always celebrates moderately Stalin as a figure of patriotic war, a great Russian patriot. And it's, do you see those catastrophic opinion polls that they make every couple of years, where, among thousands of academics, where Stalin usually finishes quite at the top, like recently, I think it was, I think it was after Alexander Nevsky, I don't know who is the third of the greatest Russians of all the time. So I think I am not in any way trying to rehabilitate Lenin. No, I think October, the only authentic tragedy was October Revolution. In the sense of, I don't buy this story that it was just a Bolshevik coup d'etat. Because whatever Lenin thought, there was public unrest, support and so on. But then I think, it, I don't think October Revolution was lost really 
in the civil war. There you have to be brutal. But the most tragic period is for me early 20s when Bolsheviks won and then they encountered the real task. Now we have power. How we will change everyday life? They have these wonderful problems, you know. If you are an atheist country, how will we do burials or marriages, all this? And, and there it was clear that the game is over. This is why, just to make a detour, I think it's a big lesson for today. This is why I get so many enemies, one of the reasons, you know. I hate those leftists in Europe, Western especially, who like this big public events. It's wonderful. One million people in Tahrir Square, one million people in Syntagma Square. And maybe you know my joke. I always like to refer here to that film. Did you see it? Was it popular with you? Uh, v for Vendetta. All radical leftists. Oh, it's multitude. It's not alienated party structure. It's multitude people, self-organized win. But my joke is always, you know how the film ends? People break the police cordon, occupy the parliament, and then the end of the film. My joke is always I, that I'm ready to sell my mother into slavery for a film called V for Vendetta Part 2. But what happened the next day? How will they effectively reorganize life? I think this is the great failure of the left today. Even when capitalism obviously is more and more in some kind of a crisis. I mean, I remember all the time when I was young, when welfare state capitalism, at least in Western Europe and United States, was functioning relatively well, the left was saying, you know, uh, wait a minute, there will be crisis. We just should, like Lenin in Switzerland, or what, wait and prepare. Okay, then there was a crisis, and what happened? Nothing. The left was not able to offer not even a minimal serious proposal. That's, I think, that's the truth, and I don't blame Syriza in Greece what happened. The, the left always thought the big leftist argument against parliamentarian democracy was it's not enough, it gets alienated, we should have social movements from below. Yeah, but you could see the impotence of this in the case of Greece. And I think I'm sick and tired of this idea of popular self organization No, the f we, we need another global, large-scale... The problem is how to change the state, not just supplement it with popular movements. Look at this fiasco, which was previsible. Here I celebrate my friend Alain Badiou, who, although he's a crazy Maoist still, but from the very beginning, you know, when it was so popular, the left in... Uh, this new Latino American populist left from the very beginning. He said, this is nothing. Okay, it's nice. Maybe they do some good things like Lula presidency in Brazil. He did develop the country. I mean, uh, I don't know how many people he left them of poverty, but it's not a new model. And one should say this openly, like, for example, with Cuba. I'm sick and tired of these stories of those who defend Cuba. Okay, they have economic trouble, but nonetheless, and they also mention education and healthcare, you know, but they did that. No, it's a model which doesn't work. And this is a tremendous problem. Because, again, I always repeat this, 
democratic capitalism is in crisis and we are slowly approaching an alternative, what is poetically called capitalism with Asian values, no? which has nothing to do with Asia, but it's more authoritarian one. And again, it's not just China, Singapore, it's Russia, it's Turkey, and even in places where democracy is still formally alive, it's becoming more and more irrelevant, as we see with this TIP and other commercial agreements, which are incredibly important. They set the frame for what government can do, but without any democratic consultation, they are half secret and so on. So back to my point, I think that from the very beginning, October Revolution, unfortunately, was doomed. I'm not saying here I'm more open into, you know, this, I like to play these alternate history games, you know, like, let us say that Stalin were to have in 1925 or six a car accident, really, without any plot. What would have happened? Maybe it wouldn't have been as bad as it was. I don't think there would have been like some Trotskyist thing, some kind of a thriving democratic <laughs> Soviet Union. Uh, it's very interesting debate. I debated it with that, how is it called, Kotkin or what, who now wrote it. And his idea is that crucial person, Rico, who was the prime minister, he was still a hardline Bolshevik, but very open, almost like Bukharin towards uh, more freedom market uh, <coughs> economy and so on. So it would have, so again, this is all interesting, but you know, that's our tragedy today. And that's for me, unfortunately, the main lesson of October Revolution. You know, this stupid Marxist theory that uh, the development of the forces of production determines uh, relations. So when forces of production get too developed, you need the new, Maybe it doesn't hold generally, but it certainly holds for Soviet Union. I simply think, and it's pretty clear, it's very primitive theory, you can correct me if you know more, that insofar as progress, industrial and so on, was based on this heavy industry, large production, socialist countries somehow managed it. But then when from the 60s, 70s, there was this shift of capitalism, towards what we call, I don't even know how to call it, postmodern, decentralized, digital, uh, new media, and so on. Stalinism, or uh, really existing socialism, couldn't cope with it. It didn't, you think it's literally that new, new for means forces of production and the old, because, you know, I had a, this may interview, I had recently a conversation with a guy who is a little bit shady, but interesting. He was in East Germany a wunderkind, a bright, one of their top stars in informatics. He was a member of the privileged circle because he was a computer genius. They were not allowed to travel to the West, but they were allowed to get all the journals. For, and he said it was so tragic where East German, their leadership, saw clearly the problem that they will enter this digital civilization or they will disappear. But their paradigm was the old one. They thought wonderful computerization, which means 
we will perfect the planning in this way. Big central computer will be able to control in detail. Uh, they eat more. They need more shoes there. You know, their paradigm was still the old communist one. Just before some ineffective. Uh, sorry, in spite of some stupid inefficient planning. Uh, committees, you computerize it, it will work. So their model of computerization was big central computers control everything. And they didn't read enough Marxism to know it that, no. The whole logic of computerization was this local interaction and so on and so on. I mean, it tragically misfired. So I don't believe I'm here a pessimist. I don't believe simply, I don't know, the awareness of the sense of freedom and so on and so on. And no. Like, revolutions never happen, here I'm more of a pessimist, because people want freedom and so on. They happen when two much more important things happened. Uh, uh, Jean Le Carré, the detective writer, said something very nice. He said that uh, one real reformist in Central Committee or Politburo means more than 1,000 dissidents outside Politburo. That is to say, uh, uh, the problem was this one. They, and this was ultimately the tragedy of Gorbachev. I'm still asking myself, maybe you also, a very stupid question. Was he naive and plainly stupid, or did he know what he was doing? Because the problem was a simple one. The, the Soviet system was so immobilized, so falsely stable, that it didn't sustained, it wasn't able to survive even a very limited opening. The dream of Gorbachev, I think, from what I know from people who knew him, is that he was rather naive and stupid. He thought that he can make it, open the regime a little bit so that you will have more opening, blah, blah, blah. But he, no, it didn't work. It was too immobilized. So again, I don't believe in this Solzhenitsyn ruined <laughs> Apart from this, general problem that real communist, real socialist countries simply were not able, look, you have now this ridiculous problem in North Korea. They try to control internet even in China and so on. So is this problem a new stage of development, I'm consciously here talking in my forces of production, cannot do it? That's uh, one problem. The, the uh, Another uh, problem is, especially in multinational countries like Soviet Union and Yugoslavia, the problem is that the whole unity of a country was based on a certain political vision. Like in Yugoslavia also, you know, when things were going bad, there were desperate attempts, especially by some Serbs, and I'm not blaming them for it, it's logical, to claim that Yugoslavia is not just Tito's socialism. Yugoslavia is also brotherhood unity of, uh, of uh, all Balkan Slavs here and so on. This didn't work. Yugoslavia was to such an extent uh, uh, identified. The whole strength of Yugoslavia was what? Strength, if you can call it like that, was we are communist but not in the same way as Soviet Union. Our communism is different, which was like, I would say, I like these games, you know, when they say in China, Mao was 70% good and 30% bad, no? This was like uh, 
30% true and 70% not true. That is to say, it was much better. We were allowed all the time from early 60s to travel abroad and so on. By abroad, I mean the West, of course. But uh, it didn't survive this test. And I think it's the same problem with, uh, with, uh, with Russia, the problem Putin is facing. On Russians were not able to offer other nations, Ukrainians, Baltic states, and so on, an alternate vision. So why are we together if it's not on ground of building socialism, and so on, and so on? Yeah, uh, it's very primitive what I'm saying, I know, but I'm a common sense guy here. Again, I'm here, I like to be a little bit of a vulgar Marxist. Uh, you know, nationalism is always in the background, nationalist passions, but that's why the question to be asked is, why did nationalism explode exactly at this moment? And one aspect which we should not underestimate absolutely is that, at least in ex-Yugoslavia, nationalism was a way for the ex-communist nomenclatura to survive. When, uh, when Yugoslavia entered its mortal crisis in early 80s, which was a much worse crisis economically than in other communist countries. Do you know that according to official statistics, throughout the early 80s, in those six, seven years, the, how do you call it, real purchase power, what you can buy, you know how much it fell for 40%. That's what I call crisis. Not when they say today, ooh, you can buy 3% less, 40%. And I think that the way socialist nomenclatura in each of the republics tried to redeem itself is to play nationalist cards. Because you could no longer legitimize yourself as we guarantee that we follow the socialist road. That was over. So this was the genius of Milosevic, I claim. He was the first one to do this step, not implicitly, but open, openly. The, his true legitimization was uh, uh, national identity. And then, if you were a good politician, you could either combine this with multi-party democracy or, on the contrary, present multi-party democracy as a threat to your nation. Like, in, uh, in the sense that if we just allow multi-party elections, our nation will be exploited again. This was, for example, big argument of Slovene right-wing, right-wing nationalist intellectuals, you know, that if we remain in Yugoslavia, we will be outvoted by Serbs and so on and so on. So this is one argument. The second argument, much more sad and tragic, is that, you know, when people asked me, or people asked me, everyone was asking this in London, uh, it wasn't even in Poland, I think, at some stupid round table in mid-90s in London. We debated Poland and somebody said, what miracles are happening? Isn't this a miracle that, uh, you know, like, who would have imagined five, ten years ago that in free election communists will be defeated and Valenza president, but now we have it. Then I said something with which I still agree. But isn't, okay, it's difficult to imagine that. But wouldn't it have been in that uh, ecstasy of first free elections? If somebody were to tell you, wait a minute, in four years, in the same free elections, 
the successor of the communist will return to power. That was the true shock. I think that people really didn't want, uh, didn't want free market. People are afraid of these dangers, uncertainties that come with free market. So I think that, uh, that uh, I think that in a way, the same, okay, I'll put it like this, I will try to be very short. Com uh, communists knew, even if you read the communist state propaganda, already somewhere in, I would say, in Brezhnev era, at least from mid-70s, they no longer really talked about we will overcome the West. That game was over. And here I find almost, although he was also a weird person of its own, you know what's so interesting about Khrushchev? Khrushchev's era, till early 60s, was the last epoch when nomenclatura and even many ordinary people still think we are active, we can overcome the United States. They somehow believed, you know, and Sputnik and all that uh, 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 flight into space bullshit. But then, from mid-70s at least, I spoke this with some East German friends who confirmed this, if you really look at how, not the official propaganda, but how the regime e effectively legitimized itself. It was not history is on our side. No, it is. Look, let's be frank. You live better in the West, but you have uncertainty, competition, it's horrible. Here, you live more modestly, but it's stability. You don't have to worry. It's this very, and I think that this was the secret don't underestimate the relative success of it. The problem with Stalinism is they didn't even allow you, or in a very limited way, this, how do you call it, private niche. You know, you go on the 1st of May, upload the leader, but then you are free to enjoy your small life. And in East Germany, in uh, Czechoslovakia and so on, they not only allowed it, but this was their legitimization. Okay, maybe we don't have political freedom, but look, you have this safe life and so on and so on. So the problem with dissident critical movements is they wanted the party rule to be over, but they still wanted this safety. And then they were looking for other names, nationalism or whatever. And there is a third aspect then, which may surprise you. I've written about this, which is... Uh, Maybe you know the story. Once I was, it's a real story. In mid-90s, I was in Belgrade, half illegally. I just visited a friend there. And we went to a restaurant, and there were some people there who were obviously involved with ethnic slaughtering, killing in Bosnia. And I got a wonderful lesson from them. Because uh, I was a little bit arrogant, and I said, you know, all this Western bullshit you primitive Balkan people, you're afraid of too much freedom, uncertainty, you want some stability. And they told me something wonderful. They told me, no, it's the opposite for us. Your Western liberal order appears to be the order of freedom, but it's really so over-regulated. And they made these cynical remarks like, I cannot even beat and rape a woman if I like her. I, you have to be respectful towards women. You cannot make racist jokes. You cannot steal in peace. Everything is regulated. And one of them told me, listen, I become a nationalist. I go to Bosnia. I can kill, rape. You know, it's wonderful how they experience their nationalism as a space of freedom. 
in the sense of, oh, we can do all the dirty things, murdering, killing. You should also not underestimate this aspect. I always quote here Adorno, who already in late 30s wrote about it. How? Nazism is not just discipline sacrificed for the country, but pretend to do this and you will have your filthy freedom. You can kill the Jews, beat them, rape, whatever you want, and so on. With this so-called post-communist Visegrad, whatever, East Europe, from Baltic states, uh, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovak Republic, Hungary, and Slovenia and Croatia. This, I cannot but call it, rise of a Christian fundamentalism, which is more and more even directly playing with fascism and so on. Uh, it's, it's something uh, totally crazy, a new Conspiracy theory is emerging now. I see already its outline, which is incredible. They combine Western liberalism, politically correct multiculturalism, and Islamism, claiming they are really two sides of the same attempt to ruin Christian civilization and so on and so on. For them, they are, they are the same. So again, this is what I would have worried about. I mean, if it's simply, now you will say, okay, it's because of economic disappointment. It's not as simple as that. This is really mysterious. I don't have a good theory. But listen, Poland is for me the enigma. I know how we should point out how the ordinary people are disappointed with democracy. They didn't get economically what they expected. But at least in Poland, in Poland, in the last 20 years, of 25 now. There was a kind of a genuine economic success. My God, according to statistics, the standard of, okay, you have rich and poor, but nonetheless, average standard of living went up for almost 100%. Why then this totally crazy nationalist religious twist? This is, this is for me the proof that we have many things to understand that we that we that we don't understand and that this simplistic marxist theory no oh people are disappointed by by capitalism and so on and so on uh, it doesn't work i think that the pr and th the problem is precisely why does capitalism itself generate these new forms of fundamentalism why is capitalism losing, because till now, in spite of what Marxists were saying, till, I would say, 10 years ago, it was basically true that capitalism sooner or later brought democracy. Capitalism did allow a dictatorship, a little bit of fascism here, in Philippines, in South Korea, in Chile, in Brazil, but when things start moving after 10, 15 years, democracy returns. In the long term, Capitalism did imply democracy. My thesis is that this game is over. I will be very cynical now. This is one of the best definitions of really existing socialism. That in some countries where it brought industrialization, it was the best intermediate stage from one to the next stage of capitalism. <laughs> you know that, in, isn't it clear in China? Don't underestimate communism. People, my Chinese friends are telling me, with all the horrors of Maoism, it did bring universal education, Maoism, it ruined traditional family structure. 
it brought again education and so on, and all this created the base for today's explosive capitalism. Because you know, before China was very traditional Confucian. Cultural revolution for me, and anybody who was so mad at me when I told him this. The objective function of Chinese cultural revolution was to prepare the conditions for Deng Xiaoping. There is no tension there, you know. That's the tragedy, that's the tragedy. And as Alain Badiou, whom I got is still even a Maoist, repeats, if we still want to talk about communism, we really have to accept, really, 20th century is over. For in all figurations of the left, oh, uh, of course, Stalinist communist left is over. It's the greatest irony of history that where the communists are still in power, if you abstract from freaks like Cuba and North Korea, they are usually now the most efficient managers of wild capitalism in China, in Vietnam, and so on. So that's over. Especially, I think, the danger that is today, this idea of a new populist left, you know, like we need stronger nation-state populism, I think also it's a catastrophe. So often I'm then asked, but fuck you, why don't you then say the game is over? Let's Ah, here I'm unfortunately a pessimist. I think, as I always repeat in my book, we are approaching so many problems which I'm a pessimist, it will not be able to solve them within global capitalism the way we have it. From ecology to refugees, international capital and so on. And it's a pretty desperate situation. I'm a pessimist. We have problems, but we don't have even a general view of how to act. I'm totally opposed to this pseudo-radical leftist mantra. We have it also in Slovenia. Western Europe is a fake. Where is now our opening and freedom and universalism? We are treating uh, refugees like, uh, uh, like dogs. We are putting them in concentration camps and so on and so on. My God, this is for me just the leftist extravaganza of, you know, you feel your moral superiority, but it doesn't address the right problems, it doesn't solve any problems. There, you see this absolute scandal in Austria, where now they are in a total panic, where the first and the second were right-winger and the second Green Party, and there is a serious danger that they will have a right-wing uh, president. Or the example that I always use from Germany, when I debated refugees, a guy, probably you know the story, a right-winger asked me a wonderful question. He said, you talk about democracy, blah, blah, blah. But listen, where is then when Angela Merkel said, come, we'll do it? call for immigrants to come. She did a very radical geopolitical gesture, inviting millions to come to Germany. Where is her democratic legitimization? In any referendum, the majority would have been against that. So even with Varoufakis, when I debated this a couple of times with him, he squeezes out. He says, yeah, this is because people are, people are manipulated. If we had just two weeks of real debate, no, it would have been even worse, I claim. We have to accept this paradox that and confront it somehow. The majority, and here the so-called lower class people are even worse. That's the paradox in the West. Big capital is always politically correct, open, multicultural, and so on. And what I'm fighting for is 
Of course, I don't in any way support racism and so on. But obviously, this work of just uh, attacking ordinary people, racists and so on, and playing, this obviously is extremely counterproductive. Leftists who play this game, just, uh, they're doing it for, it's extremely narcissistic economy. They want to feel well, you know, oh my God, I'm the only pure one. Look, the country is falling apart into madness, but I am. No, what did you do? You are part of this madness and so on. I mean, I really think that, uh, for example, like, I hate this humanitarian version of, you know, as if the problem of refugees is the first thing I would have done. It's not a humanitarian problem. It's a big economic and political problem and cultural where we have to raise all different questions. Like, for example, first, it's obvious, and I was almost excommunicated for saying this, Wait a minute, there are just beneath the crisis region, south of Syria and Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Emirates, extremely rich Arab countries. They simply don't accept any refugees, although they are mostly Sunnis, religiously speak the same language and so on. So it is as if Europe nonetheless accepted millions of them and now we are guilty for not accepting even more of them. There is a certain totally catastrophic game going on here. Also with Putin, I understand him because it's the old story, don't you think that uh, he still needs a certain genuine legitimacy. He's not just simply a dictator in the Stalinist sense. And I think that it's the old story, you know, when economy is not doing too good, you go into our nation is in danger and all that stuff and so on. But it's very important what you mentioned of, of this new cultural conservatism. I even put, you know, what is for me the symbol? I use this a couple of times in my text. You remember that uh, Eurovision competition where that Austrian bearded lady won. And how Russia all of a sudden started to talk this traditional language, which is for me already on the way towards Boko Haram. And it's very interesting phenomenon, Boko Haram. I love them, it's the ultimate horror. Are you aware what a crazy thing Boko Haram is? We have a large political movement, which claims that we are in a crisis and that to get out of the crisis, we should reorganize totally our society. How? to prohibit education to women to re-establish a fixed sexual identity. It was the same in panic. Uh, uh, Putin said after that Conchita Wurst victory. Uh, in the Bible it says there are men and women. What do we have now? One of those cultural theorists of Putin said, a bearded lady, if this is a symbol of Europe, then no thanks. So it's absolutely crucial to understand why this new way that sexual is becoming political today. And I think that this Western obsession with minorities, rights, this, all this transgender business that you get now in the United States, it's also a false issue. It's the political reasoning which will horribly misfire. And it's a very dangerous phenomenon, this new cultural struggle that is emerging. You know, the good thing about being a small country is almost the same as the bad one. The bad thing is that you are there and who cares, ultimately, probably, let's say, if Russia decides to occupy you simply all of it, 
it would, could mean terrible tensions, but I don't think the West would have risked uh, a new world war. Or so. so you are vulnerable. On the other hand, you know, if you exploit your position intelligently, I always use the, here as an example Korea. They suffer terribly because they are in a horrible situation. Three superpowers, Russia, China, Japan. But South Korea, at least, let's forget the monster up there. South Korea is, you should visit it. It's incredible. It's a new economic, it is what Japan was 20, 30 years ago. It's incredibly developed, exploding, and so on. My son admires them. You know why? He is, uh, is this his, still his map? Yeah, six, six plays like crazy games. You know that South Koreans are, in all those games, uh, video, uh, the top of the world. Whenever you have these international competitions, at least half of the winners are all. But it's not only this. South Korea is almost our future. The whole country is crazy. Uh, you, they are absolute record holders of the suicide rate among the young. Young people are obsessed with two ideas, success, business, and enjoy fully. And this is why they are... But what I'm saying is that that's the tragedy of small countries. On the one hand, even when there is a crisis, you can find your niche not being so affected by a crisis. But on the second hand, if things go catastrophically for you, there can be an outcry, whatever, you know, but... No. But I think that with a little bit of luck, you can survive, don't you think? Like, I don't know enough. Do you think it's enough for Russians to get that? Those shitty two parts, Abkhazia, or do they? Who knows? For example, we in Slovenia were very lucky here because the church played in the whole dissident critical movement an extremely marginal role. So in no way was the church perceived as. The fight was among secular intellectuals, more Heideggerian, conservative, nationalist one, more open one, but church was never this. In these desperate times where it's crazy to talk, uh, socialist revolution or whatever, you should focus on this. It's very important which, how should I call it, ideological atmosphere predominates in the society. I agree with you, it's very dangerous if this will become the hegemonic attitude, because this is what the church tries to achieve here, claiming, okay, we have our differences, but basically the church is the ultimate guarantee of the Slovene nation. Now, with us, hopefully it doesn't work. How did you solve this problem? Because there are even three arguments working against this. First, we have mega sexual pedophilia scandals. And the way the church reacted to them was scandalous, you know. No priest was punished by the church and so on. They just transferred. So this second thing, after independence, way too aggressively, they tried to penetrate the public sphere of education and so on. And they did it in such an aggressive way that even many religious people were opposed to it. So they are now, they are not perceived at all as an authentic ethical force. But that's another big corrupted organization which just wants more public power and so on. And maybe this is what we secular intellectuals achieved here, that even when they talk about religion, spirituality, it's almost generally achieved that they don't really care about this. 
this means for them just another tool, you know, to occupy the public space of education and so on. So this is the second. The third thing is that, I don't know how it was with you, but it was a little bit like in Poland. Uh, now it's returning church, but after, why did Kaczynski or who won against Valencia, it's that the church became so arrogant in the process of denationalization. They wanted just back everything. In, in Slovenia, the church tried the same. It didn't work and it was a catastrophe for their popularity because they were perceived as just... To give you an example, you know what they wanted back? You know a little bit of European sister, the son of Maria Theresia, Joseph II, the reformer. He nationalized, he took many lands and monasteries from the church in Austrian Empire. The church wanted back not just what communists took from them in 45, but even what Joseph II took from them. And this was too much for people. Then a liberal government here did something ingenious which hurt church. Okay, if the people want... So they said that when you do your tax, when you, how do you call it, fill in tax form, you have a certain, for a certain percentage, you can choose where will it go. You can have church, healthcare, charity organizations, culture. You know how many people have chosen church, like one, two percent, nothing, and so on. And then, of course, church claim this is because secretly we are still occupied by communists or whatever. No, they are not popular. They have no chance in Slovenia. That's at least one good thing. First, it's never clear to me, for those who want revolution, what do they think? That if we organize some revolutionary movement, there will be some crisis when we will take over. Isn't it more and more clear, and this makes me very sad, that whenever the situation gets tough, it's as a rule conservatives or fascists or whatever who win. I mean, I, I don't even see, maybe, you know, many ordinary people would react to this with this type of basic skepticism, you know, like revolution, okay, but like my vendetta part two question, but how will you organize society, in what way, how, and what can you answer them? Okay, people will be in power. Fuck you, what does this mean, people will be in power? How? Elections, who, where? And so, uh, even in this, the clear sign that, again, in spite of all these economic troubles in Western Europe, Latin countries, the Syriza went the farthest. Not direct revolution, but vote. And even they had to compromise. I think they need, my line with Syriza is Varoufakis. That is to say, neither left platform, which is not revolution, but this naive state socialist version. Grexit out of Europe, we print our own money, we invest. Well, good idea, but uh, 100 years uh, too, too late. You know, like, uh, I, the problem is the global market, you know. The problem is that in order to make this efficient, you have to cut off yourself from international financial resources. And in Greece, this is, you know, Greece is a very non-productive country. They have tourism, they have feta cheese and that olives, whatever bullshit. And that's it. They, they, they uh, import all of their medicines, most of their food, all the technical stuff and so on. And you cannot just say we isolate ourselves, then we invest, print our money. So again, I would have said that 
this conflict is for me, uh, this, sorry, this choice is for me too abstract because I don't even see a chance for anything like revolution in the near future to, uh, to succeed. I think the way to do it now is, specifically in these times, it's uh, first to be ready for crisis approaching. I think, unfortunately, and I'm not glad about it, but we don't live in happy times where it will go on and on. There will be new explosions, new crises, new tensions, who knows what and so on. We should always be aware with part of our mind in the background that to be ready for emergency or whatever. But second thing, I think we should not be afraid of small, precise battles, apparently small steps, but which have a great symbolic meaning. Look, we all know ooh, Obama disappointment, but I think that in a way Obama laid the foundation for Bernie Sanders. For example, it was incredibly important, the big debate they had on universal health care. Nobody could accuse him, although some idiots did, this is a communist measure. My God, all the countries around Canada has it, still some kind of, you know. But you see, in American context, you give people to think, universal health care, why not? An important thing. But at the same time, all the right-wingers went crazy. They denounced Obama to Supreme Court and so on. So I think that more important than this big worldview debate, are we socialists not, is to fight for this type of particular problems, but which have, how should I put it, a universal connotation attached to them, like healthcare, like, and you can argue in a very efficient way, like, I don't know, uh, education and so on. It is so clear, for example, I was in Denmark for some stupid colloquium, but then I met some people from TV there. They told me, are they also popular with you? You know, this new TV series they had, which are Borgen, uh, uh, The Bridge, and so on. This was the best of socialism. This was not spontaneous market. There were a couple of bosses who said, this is our unique chance. So they uh, established with a relatively small investment, a group, they established the rules, people compete, different groups, you get three years, and it's a worldwide success. But you see, uh, this is a good example of how even a mark, that's the mystery of today's capitalism. I would have used this. If you look at countries like, forget China, Singapore, South Korea, this is not simple wild market liberal capitalism. This is capitalism combined with an extremely strong intelligent role of the state. So I think that's w that should be our message to people, that uh, stronger role of the state is a reality today. And the point is how to do it intelligently. People say United States, let's be serious. You know, there was never a stronger state in the world than United States today with all the security. So what I'm saying is that it's more important to convince people how good social interventions are not just this stupid socialist way you ruin everything, but can be extremely efficient. And just to 
pursue this, uh, apart from the usual stuff that we are also doing, these gay rights or whatever you want there, no? To, to somehow convince people to see reality. First, neoliberalism. It's not a reality. It's, I always emphasize it's an ideology. State interventions, state help, state organizations are absolutely crucial today. For example, I learned, I met some guys at some stupid round table. Google, my God, Google is closely connected to US uh, state establishment. Some people, my friends, describe Google as private NSA. You know? <laughs> so what I'm saying is that uh, here is how I would proceed. Not big ideological debates, but first, this awareness of a crisis, it's absolutely crucial to always bear in mind this today, especially small nations like yours and mine. You know, we live in dangerous times and we are negligible, like nothing will change if we <laughs> disappear. But in the second point, this precise struggles, you know, whatever, education, this, that, or whatever, to convince people this is so true. For example, I don't know how it is with you, but here again, it's interesting how some populist leftists, but also conservatives, hate humanities and this general social education, claiming this is totally useless and so on, it means nothing. No, we should insist more and more that in today's dynamic capitalism, more general education is needed. And there are even statistical data confirming it so nicely, like uh, uh, my son, who now dreams of going to United States to study, everyone is dreaming, found some data where they claim that even in this more technological, from economy to I don't know what, okay, non-human, non uh, faculties, if you have some kind of general education, mathematics, uh, more abstract, you are usually much better in your particular field than those who were directly educated in that field. This is, I think, one of the most important struggles today. Like in Europe, we have now a catastrophe that Bologna reform, when they want to streamline education towards what society really needs. But society doesn't know what it needs. It's changing so fast and so on, you know. So I'm here. It's a pretty desperate situation, no? But that's all we can do now, I think. The true revolution today would have been just to be a really efficient reformist. Because even this you cannot do it today. That's the tragedy. This was for me the big lesson of Syriza. I've written about it and people noted it, but it's so tragic and important. Do you remember, if you look closely at what Syriza demanded, 56 years ago, this would have been moderate social democracy, not even a radical social democracy, but moderate one. So don't we live in strange times in which when you advocate the same thing as 50 years ago, Moderate democracy did, you are perceived as a radical leftist today. So this is why I think that, again, we live in much more perverted paradoxical times. That to be, again, an authentic moderate reformist today is 
is already intolerable for global economy, global capitalism. But that's why I'm saying that the problems that we face are two today. It's global capital, open irrationalities, and so on. Uh, and at the same time, again, all this, what you mentioned, religious, ethnic reactions. Because that's the global formula today. Capitalism brings chaos, so we need... The Chinese are doing this. Confucius is now a big hero. Some kind of traditional wisdom to keep control. And the point is how to, how to undermine this. What matters for me when I say culture, I don't mean this sublime culture. I mean, and this is so important, this everyday thing, how women are effectively treated. How, you know, that this everyday culture, this is where ideology is happening today and where ideology fascinates me. Who cares about this big ideology? No, ideology is for me even how you go to the toilet, my boring example, <laughs> you know, how you treat others or what is considered acceptable or not, how you speak and so on. That's why, although I almost sometimes don't think that I met, have sympathized with Donald Trump. No, 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 he is pig. But others are worse Republicans. I claim that it's clear. Did you see what he is recently saying? He was for, uh, for higher minimal wage and so on and so on. No, he, I think he plays this clown to mask up the fact that he is almost half a liberal there. He is disgusting, I know. But listen. Listen to Ted Cruz and you will see what real horror is and all those other And this is, I think, an extremely dangerous phenomenon because, you know, every democracy functions always when it's based on some unwritten rules, which are not explicitly, like, in the United States you had democracy, but the, all of it was based on the theory. you have two parties in a certain way, you respect how you... It was a well-known pattern, and this pattern is now ruined by Sanders and even more maybe in what will happen now with Republican Party and so on. It can be totally chaotic. The same thing is happening in the West. You had till now what I described, you know, this moderate left, moderate right, exchanging. Uh, this, how should I put it, normal way for a political regime to reproduce itself is disintegrating. And these moments are dangerous. They can give hope to us, but they can also, well, <laughs>